Well, good morning, Redeemer family. My name is Brian, and uh, today we're going to be looking at Psalm 136. I'd encourage you to find your place there, uh, about the middle of your Bible, and to keep your Bibles open this morning, uh, because we'll be going back to it again and again. And while you're finding your place this morning, I wanted to begin by thinking about the power of habit. The power of habit. You see, we tend to think that we're essentially rational creatures, that we make conscious decision after conscious decision, and that's the way that we lead, the way that we lead our lives, right? So if you want to do something new, if you want to do something new with exercise or diet, you want to do something new in relationships, or you want to do something new at work, all you really have to do is think about it consciously, make a conscious decision, and then exert enough willpower. But you've tried that, haven't you? And it doesn't always work. Did you know that 25% of New Year's resolutions are done, are finished, fail by the middle of January? You see, we're not just rational creatures. We're also creatures of habit. You see, studies show that the majority of our life and our choices boil down to repeated actions, that habits shape everything that we do. Think about driving. Uh, I have four teenage drivers in my family, uh, which means I've had a front row seat to watch four people learn to drive in the last three years. Do you, do you remember learning to drive? Remember when you had to make an intentional choice to put your foot on the brake and then take it out of park and then move your foot over to the gas pedal and depress the gas to move forward? Right. Think about the last time you drove. How much did you actually think about driving? Probably not much, right, if at all. Uh, there are times when I'm driving that I will zone out. Does this happen to you? And I will show up, I'll be so deeply thinking about something or engrossed in conversation that I'll be 20 minutes down the road and I won't remember how I got from point A to point B. Does this happen to you? Are you familiar with this experience? Just completely zoning out. Why? Because you're literally on autopilot at that point. And that's how we live much of our lives. We live much of our lives by repetition. We're creatures of habit. We have rhythms and routines, patterns and practices. One of my favorite quotes from a secular source goes like this, watch your thoughts because they become your words. Watch your words because they become your actions. Watch your actions because they become your habits. Watch your habits because they become your character. Watch your character because it becomes your destiny. Did you know that it takes 21 days, they say, to form a new habit? Do you know why that is? It's because we need to practice something over and over again. We need to repeat it over and over, over again. And athletes know this, right? They, they go to the gym and they practice a skill over and over again until it becomes rote, until it becomes muscle memory, until it becomes an automated response. Steph Curry, 
is arguably one of the greatest three-point shooters in NBA history. He's the point guard uh, for the Golden State Warriors. He sat out last season with an injury to his right hand. And as he came back this year, he started off in a slump. He's a 44% three-point shooter for his career. He only shot 20% in his first two games, four out of 20. And so you know what Steph Curry did? He went to the gym. He practiced. He stayed after practice. He put up shots. Then he stayed after and he put up more shots. There was a video that came out about that time of Steph Curry shooting corner threes, and he made 105 uh, corner threes in a row without missing in the span of about five minutes, right? Why did he go back and practice? Because he needed to remember, right? It, and 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 Steph, don't worry about Steph Curry, he's doing fine at this point. He had a career-high 62 points early in, earlier in the week, 38 points uh, later on this week. He's doing okay. Uh, you, you don't have to worry about Steph. But what does this have to do with the Christian life? Everything. You see, your practices and your patterns, your rhythms and your routines will shape your life. They will shape your life. And we're always being discipled by something. So here's what I want you to think about this morning. What are you practicing? What are you repeating? What are your habits? What's your autopilot? Psalm 136 this morning is going to give you tools to develop a new pattern, a new habit. It's the habit of gratitude. And this habit of gratitude is going to shape all your other habits. And it's going to shape your character. And my prayer this morning is that gratitude would become so ingrained in our lives that it becomes your rote response, that it becomes your automated response that it becomes your new autopilot. As we look at the passage this morning, we're going to look at it under three headings, and those three headings are going to be three words in the text. The first is a command, give thanks. That's repeated four times in our text. And the next two are prepositions. The second point is going to be two, and you'll see the preposition two repeated 12 times in the text. And then the third, uh, the third word is for, the second preposition, and that word for is going to appear 27 times in the text this morning. And here's what I'm going to tell you today. Habitually rehearsing God's goodness cultivates gratitude, which shapes our lives. Let me say that again. Habitually rehearsing God's goodness cultivates gratitude, which shapes our lives. And this morning, as we come to the text, I want to read Psalm 136 responsively. This is the way the church has been reading this text for nearly 3,000 years, and yes, that includes the Old Testament church. I'll read the first part of each verse, and then I want you to read back to me, with me, for me, the refrain, which is, for his steadfast love endures forever. And as we're doing this together, would you stand with me this morning and let's focus our attention on Psalm 136 as we read it responsively. Give thanks to the Lord, 
for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. To him who alone does great wonders. To him who by understanding made the heavens. To him who spread out the earth above the waters. To him who made the great lights. The sun to rule over the day. The moon and stars to rule over the night. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt and brought Israel out from among them with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. To him who divided the Red Sea in two and made Israel pass through the midst of it. but overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. To him who led his people through the wilderness. To him who struck down great kings and killed mighty kings. Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to Israel his servant. It is he who remembered us in our low estate and rescued us from our foes. He who gives food to all flesh. Give thanks to the God of heaven, for his steadfast love endures forever. So far, God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word may write its eternal truth on all of our hearts. You may be seated, and would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we hear your people repeat the refrain again and again for your steadfast love endures forever i pray this morning that that would be the prayer of our hearts and the prayer of our lives as we consider your word this morning, I ask that you would convince us of our sin and misery, that you would enlighten our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and that you would renew our wills by the power of your gospel, through the work of your Holy Spirit and the mediation of your Son. I ask that you would forgive the one who preaches his sins, for they are many. May we see Jesus in him only. Amen. So, give thanks to and four. And this command and two prepositions are going to answer three questions. They're going to answer the questions what, 
To whom and why? So what, what are we supposed to do? That's answered by the command, give thanks. And to whom? To whom should we give our thanks? Each time the preposition to is used, it's going to reveal the character of the one who deserves our thanks. It's going to give you reason after reason for thanks. And why? Why should we give our thanks? For is used in every verse. And it's repeating the reason for thanks. We give thanks for He is good and for His steadfast love endures forever. And so here's the basic argument of the psalm. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good. But if you're like me, maybe you didn't get out of bed this morning with a thankful heart. And so we're going to look at this in reverse. We're going to give you the reasons before we give you the command. So we're going to look at for He is good to the Lord and then give thanks. So first of all, let's consider together then for, which answers the question, why should we give thanks? Look at verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good. For He is good. What does it mean that God is good? We use the word good in lots of ways. Webster says that good can mean favorable, as in good news, or bountiful, as in a good land, or handsome, as in good looks. Good can mean suitable, as in good to eat, or free from injury, as he has one good arm, or pleasing, as in a good time. Good can mean honorable, as in good standing, or virtuous, as in a good person, or good conduct. It can mean benevolent, as in good intentions, or competent, as in a good doctor, or close, as in a good friend. But those are all aspects and dimensions of the attribute of goodness. And when you see goodness in creation, you're seeing a reflection of an aspect of the character of God. Because God is good. And He's not good by some external measure or standard. He is goodness itself. Can you wrap your mind around that? He is goodness itself. There was a greeting a number of years ago that went around in Christian circles. God is good all the time. And the response was, all the time, God is good. There you go. You see, you can't separate God's goodness from God Himself. And you can't separate goodness from God. You can't separate God from goodness. It's part of His essence. It's part of His essence. What does it mean that God is good? Mark Jones, in his devotional, God Is, says this. It's our reflection quote this morning. God is good, and necessarily so. God's essence does not conform to some external standard of goodness. God is essentially goodness itself. This essential attribute of God means that His other attributes, for example, wisdom and power, are aspects of His goodness. His essence is good, 
so that he cannot do anything that is not good. His essence is good, so he can't do anything that's not good. But sometimes we doubt God's goodness, if we're honest, don't we? Sometimes we wonder and question whether God is good. Have you been there? It's when a marriage ends, or when a child dies, or when you lose your job, or when the prognosis is cancer. Maybe we question God's goodness when we see yet another instance of injustice in society, and you think, that could be my son. Or maybe you question God's goodness when someone close to you betrays you and takes everything from you. You see, sometimes our circumstances can lead us to question the goodness of God. And that's part of what the book of Job addresses. Right? How can God be good when I lose ten children to a disaster and all my wealth is taken away and I break out in sores from head to foot? How can God be good then? And we find the answer that's, that's in Job echoed in the book of Romans, in Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. It's not saying that all things are good, but all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. In other words, in the midst of your heartbreak and disaster and grief and loss, God is doing something in your heart. He's doing something in your life to prepare you for the eternal weight of glory. He's using hardship. He's using hardship in your life to conform you more and more to the image of His Son. And remember Jesus. Jesus walked in the way of suffering. And when Jesus walked in the way of suffering, that was the ultimate expression of God's goodness. And yet on the surface, it didn't seem very good. It didn't seem just. It didn't seem fair. And yet it was the ultimate expression of God's goodness. And so the psalmist in the text this morning is going to move to the attribute of God's goodness to the action. He's going to move you from God's essence in theory to a concrete reality that we can touch and taste and experience. He unpacks for He is good with another phrase. And what's the phrase in parallel there? For His steadfast love endures forever. And he repeats this phrase 26 times in the psalm. One time in every verse. And it's his response to everything in the psalm. His automated response. His rote response. And the psalmist wants this to be your response too. He wants you to say it out loud again and again. In fact, in our call to worship this morning in Psalm 118, he urges us to say it aloud. You can flip over a couple chapters here to Psalm 118.1. It begins, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. 
And by the way, that's exactly the same. It's identical to Psalm 136.1. And it also shows up at the beginning of Psalm 106 and the beginning of Psalm 107. And he goes on to say, Let Israel say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, His steadfast love endures forever. You see, he wants you to say it out loud. His steadfast love endures forever. And it's intentional on the part of the redactor of the book of Psalms that Psalm 118.1 and Psalm 136.1 are exactly the same. And do you know what he puts in between there? Psalm 119, that massive Torah acrostic beholding the glory of the Word of God, 176 verses telling you that God's Word is good. And then Psalm 120 to 134 are the Psalms of Ascent. These were Psalms that we would sing on the journey. So why does God put Psalm 118 and Psalm 136 around this Torah acrostic and the Psalms of Ascent? He's wanting to tell you that when you view your journey in light of God's law, you will see that His steadfast love endures forever. So much so that He's going to have you repeat it 26 times for his steadfast love endures forever. And it's going to become the refrain of this psalm. Now, that refrain, it's six words in English, but it's just three words in Hebrew. And I want to call your attention this morning to one of those three Hebrew words. It's the Hebrew word chesed. And there's a good guttural on the front of that. Chesed, right? It's chesed. And chesed is translated in, your, in the ESV here in our text this morning as steadfast love. And the essence of chesed is love, but it's more than that. And so you get translations adding adjectives like steadfast, or another translation says faithful, or another translation turns the whole thing into loving kindness. You see, God's chesed here is his covenant love. It's his covenant love. It's rooted in his covenant with his people and it results in action. And because it's connected to the covenant, there's a sense of loyalty. There's a sense of certainty about this love. It's love with a binding commitment. It's love with tenacity. It's love with durability, right? The Westminster Confession of Faith talks about the love of God as the free and unchangeable love of God the Father. But I think maybe the storybook Bible puts it best. How does it refer to God's chesed? As his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And you can hear the essence of that love that's echoed in the refrain, for his steadfast love endures forever. And that refrain is not only repeated in this psalm, it's also repeated throughout Israel's history. It's repeated 40 times in the Old Testament, and it becomes a central theme of Israel's worship of God. It's used in 1 Chronicles 16, 
when David celebrates the return of the ark to Jerusalem about 1,000 B.C., when the ark is put into the tabernacle, 1 Chronicles 16.34 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Then in 2 Chronicles chapter 5, when the temple is completed and the ark is brought into the temple, there are trumpeters and singers who raise a song with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in praise to the Lord. And what do they sing? For He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. And then the glory of the Lord fills the temple. And just two chapters later in 2 Chronicles 7, when Solomon dedicated the temple in 966 B.C., it says that all the people of Israel bowed down and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. It's likely that this was sung during the celebration of of the Passover year after year as Israel celebrated their deliverance from Egypt. And then in Ezra 3, verse 11, this song was sung when the foundation of the second temple was completed about 520 B.C. The book of Ezra says they sang responsively. They sang responsively, like we read it this morning, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. You see, for His steadfast love endures forever is not only the refrain of this psalm, it's the refrain of Israel's history. And what would it look like if this were the refrain of your life? If this became our automated response to the world around us, right? Your son expresses true faith in the gospel, and your response is, for his steadfast love endures forever. You get cut off in traffic, for his steadfast love endures forever. You see the beauty of an amazing sunset for His steadfast love endures forever. You see the capital being stormed at the verification of an election, for His steadfast love endures forever. Your heart overflows with joy during corporate worship, for His steadfast love endures forever. You need to take your daughter to the ER because she swallowed a magnet. Hypothetical situation. For His steadfast love endures forever. What if, what if our automated response to all the circumstances in our life, good or bad, big or small, was for His steadfast love endures forever? I want to suggest to you this morning that that refrain would shape whatever happened next. If we reoriented our lives around that truth, if we inserted it, and maybe even said it out loud, between stimulus and response, we would be different people. We'd be more patient. We'd be more loving. We'd be more gentle. We'd be more selfless. I think we'd begin to look more and more like Jesus. How do we get there? 
How does this refrain become our automated response? Through repetition, through practice. We want to think that we're rational creatures, but we're also creatures of habit. And what we practice in the small moments manifests in your life in the big moments. Paul David Tripp says it this way, the character of life is not set in two or three dramatic moments, but in 10,000 little moments. The character that is formed in those little moments shapes how we respond to the big moments of life. If you want for His steadfast love endures forever to be your automated response, you need to practice it daily. You need to say it out loud again and again until it becomes habit, until it becomes rote, until it becomes muscle memory, until it's like Steph Curry's jumper, right? What if the refrain of this psalm were the refrain of our lives? What would we look like then? So that's why we should give thanks for His steadfast love endures forever. Now the rest of Psalm 136 is going to unpack. It's just an exposition of the refrain. So we've talked about four. My second point, and if you're keeping track at home this morning, uh, the second two points are much shorter than the first point. Four, now we talk about two. To whom? To whom should we give our thanks? Well, the preposition to occurs 12 times in our text this morning. And the psalmist is going to use this to unpack and reveal the character of God. Every time the word to is used, he's going to tell you something about the character of God. And it begins in verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord. And then he goes on with two superlatives. He gives... It says in verse 2, look at verse 2, give thanks to the God of gods. Verse 3, give thanks to the Lord of lords. These are two superlatives that are echoing Deuteronomy 10, verse 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. You see, what the psalmist is telling you here with these superlatives is that God is the one true living God. And then the psalmist continues in verse 4, to Him who alone does great wonders. To Him who alone does great wonders. And great wonders here is a title. It's going to include both God's acts of creation in verses 5 through 9, and his acts of redemption in verses 10 through 22. So the psalmist wants, you, wants to show you the character of God by his actions. So in creation, verse 5, to him who by understanding made the heavens, verse 6, to him who spread out the earth above the waters, verse 7, to him who made the great lights, the sun to rule over the day, the moon and stars to rule over the night. And you see the psalmist here is using language from Genesis 1 because he wants to show you the goodness of God. And he wants to show you that his steadfast love endures forever in creation. You know the first time the word good is used in the Bible? 
It shows up in Genesis 1, verse 4. And Moses writes, And God saw the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And then as you keep reading in Genesis 1, each day God's pronouncement is that, and this is good. He's like an artisan who's stepping back from his work of art and is saying, this is, this is good, this is beautiful. I like that, right? And on the sixth day, God pronounces all the animals good. And then when he makes mankind, he says, behold, this is very good. It's very good. And do you know why everything that God makes is good? It's because God is good. And creation reveals that His steadfast love endures forever. But the psalmist then continues his argument for God's goodness using the story of redemption in verses 10 through 22. So in 10 through 12, he talks about God delivering Israel out of Egypt. Verses 13 through 15, he brought them through the Red Sea. Verse 16, he led them in the wilderness. Verse 17 through 20, he fought on their behalf. And in verses 21 and 22, he gives them the promised land as their inheritance. And you see, he's rehearsing Israel's story here. And he's tracing the contours of God's faithfulness. And he's saying all the while, for his steadfast love endures forever. You see, the psalmist is giving you reason after reason for thanks. And he's shown you God's goodness in creation, and then he shows you God's goodness in redemption. But now the psalmist shifts. You see, in verses 4 through 22, he's been talking about God's goodness in the past. And now he's going to talk about God's goodness in the present. In verses 4 through 22, he's been talking about God's goodness to them. And now he's going to talk about God's goodness to us. Look at verse 23 and 24. It is he who remembered us in our low estate and rescued us from our foes. You see, for his steadfast love endures forever is not just who God is, it's who God is to you. And you've seen this in your own life, haven't you? On this side of the cross, God has struck down your enemies of the world, the flesh, and the devil. He's brought you out of bondage to sin and guilt and death. He's led you through the wilderness of this life and He has promised to give you an inheritance in the new heavens and the new earth. It is He who remembered us in our low estate. Right? and rescued us from our foes. For His steadfast love endures forever. You see, it's one thing to define a word like chesed, which means love. But it's another thing entirely to experience that love. Psalm 34.8 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Imagine that I'm holding a container of honey 
And I were to tell you this is the best honey ever, and I'm a connoisseur of honey, hypothetically speaking. I've tasted honey all over the world, and this honey is amazing. It's the best honey that I've ever had. It's one thing for me to tell you about honey, but it's another thing entirely what? For you to taste the honey, for the flavor to explode on your taste buds, and for you to experience the reality of that honey. And if you stop and think about it this morning, you can trace the contours of God's goodness in your life because there have been moments when it's broken through and you've experienced it and you've tasted it. And so you can say with the psalmist, for his steadfast love endures forever. One commentator says, from the beginning of creation to the climax of redemption, from the first making of the heavens to the final inheritance of the saints, all is to be seen against the background of the love of God. That love is both indestructible because it's covenant love and boundless because it endures forever. As you look around at all that He has made and follow through all that He has done, at every point, the psalm is saying, covenant love did this. So that you can say with the psalmist at the end of the 23rd Psalm, surely goodness and chesed, His covenant love, will follow me, will pursue me, will chase me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And when you see that, when you see God's goodness manifest in your own life, our response is to give thanks. Give thanks. And this is the command. It's the third point this morning. Give thanks. It appears in the text four times. Verses 1, 2, 3, and then again in verse 26. But it's implied in every verse. Look at verse 4. To him who alone does great wonders, it's leaving something out. It's incomplete parallelism here. And what is it leaving out? What's necessary to complete that sentence? Give thanks. Give thanks to him who alone does great wonders. That's the pattern of the psalm. Every time the verse starts with to him who, you're supposed to imply you're supposed to supply, give thanks. You see, even when the word give thanks, it's one word in Hebrew, is absent, the thought is still present. Thanksgiving permeates and saturates the entire psalm. And the psalmist here isn't rehearsing God's goodness as a crusty theological exercise. And he's not repeating, for his steadfast love endures forever 26 times to annoy you. He wants to make God's goodness real to your heart. He wants to transform you on the spot. He wants to fill your heart with gratitude. He wants to shape your life with gratitude. And he knows that we're creatures of habit. On November 23rd, there was an episode of The Hidden Brain, a podcast, where Shankar Vendentum interviews David DeSteno. 
And David DeSteno has written the book entitled Emotional Success. Emotional Success. And he's not a Christian, but he's done extensive research on the power of gratitude. And he calls gratitude a superpower habit. He says most habits change one thing, but gratitude changes everything. It changes what you value and how you value things. He cites one experiment on delayed gratification, right, where people were interviewed to determine whether they would wait for $100 in a year or take a certain amount of money now. Right? So, would you take $15 now, or would you rather wait for $100 in a year? And do you know what the average was for most people? The average was $17. It took, so at $16, they would say, no, 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 I'll wait for the $100 in a year. Right? But at $17, they're saying, give me, give me the money now. Well, you get those same people laughing, and they're feeling good about themselves, they're in a good mood, and you ask them again, and it still takes just $17 to, delay the, to, to take the money now rather than having $100 uh, a year from now. But if you take that same group of people and you induce gratitude and now you ask them, now it takes $31 for them to have the money now rather than get the $100 a year later just by inducing gratitude. You see, gratitude doubled self-control. Gratitude doubled delayed gratification. And DeSteno argues that gratitude is a superpower habit. He says that studies show that there's a connection between gratitude and long-term thinking. That you're more willing to pay it forward, doing something nice now for gains down the line. He says that giving is perceived in the brain as pleasure, but when, but when you get to gratitude, gratitude is giving amped up even further. He says that practicing gratitude means that you will be more willing to help others, that you're going to be more generous with others. Gratitude results in better exercise and better relationships. Gratitude reduces illness. It reduces stress. He says that people who practice gratitude are more likely to stand up for justice. Gratitude, he says, has been called the moral memory of humankind. It reminds us that not everything is through our own effort and that there are more blessings yet to come. You see, God has so shaped our souls to be wired for gratitude that the effects are observable even to a secular psychologist. God wired us so that gratitude makes our lives better. Do you see what the psalmist is doing here? Through the repetition of for his steadfast love endures forever. He wants God's goodness to ooze into every part of your lives. He wants God's goodness to sink into the crevices of your lives. And as it does, he wants to shape our lives through gratitude. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. You see, habitually rehearsing God's goodness cultivates gratitude, which shapes 
our lives. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, would you work in our hearts through the repetition of gospel truths that we might meditate on the good news of the gospel that your steadfast love endures forever. And as we do that, would you shape our habits? Would you make us people with grateful hearts, with thanksgiving on our lips, that our lives might be conformed more and more to the image of your Son, and that we might sing from a deep place in our hearts, great is your faithfulness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.